The title of our sermon series is, what is it? Seven Dangers. Think for a second. And we've been looking each week, and we have seen a danger each week as we look at the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the churches in the book of Revelation. And we've seen who Jesus is as he describes himself. He's going to do that again today. We do see a danger every week. We see our own brokenness as human beings, broken by our sin and the sin of others. But we also see a remedy. We also see hope. We've just been singing about hope. And every week there is that hope because Jesus is Lord. Today we're looking at the final letter. And if you think about it, all of us look for satisfaction. We all look for fulfillment in many things and in many relationships. You could call it looking for life. And we do this because God made us to do this. He made us to enjoy the things that he's given us, the things around us, the people around us, to to look for that satisfaction. Sometimes you'll hear it as you and I say something like, I can't wait until, or I am so looking forward to, like my grandson. I don't know how many times has he called us and talked to us already. Going to the beach, the end of this week. Okay, and grandma's going to be there. He's looking forward to it. We could be thinking of that. You could be thinking of a movie, a new video game, a new job, a new car. All of those things are good, and many of them are fun that we can enjoy, but all of them are temporary. And the satisfaction that we get from them is also temporary. That's because God made us to enjoy all these things, but he also made us for eternal life. And he made us for eternal satisfaction. And you and I are too often too easily satisfied with lesser things. And that's what we're going to see today as we look at the last of the seven letters in Revelation. So remain seated. Let's read together from the screen, Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22. Let's read this together. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say... I am rich. I have prospered and need nothing. Realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered 
and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now each week, one of the things that I've also done is given just a little background on the city where the church is located. And if you've noticed, there is a connection, sometimes stronger, more easily seen, sometimes not, between the situation of the city and the letter. So a little background on, on Laodicea. It is not too far from the city of Philadelphia, which we looked at last week, which means that Laodicea is also in a volcanic region. It was a wealthy city. It was a banking center in its day. The city was known for its black wool, and some scholars believe that they were also a fashion center. And you might you know, come wonder what, you know, in your robe, robe fashions, I'm not sure. They were famous for having an ISAV. Now, because they were in a volcanic region, they had earthquakes. And once, after an earthquake, which was pretty devastating, much of the city was damaged or destroyed, the Roman government offered to pro provide assistance, and the city came back and said, no, thank you, we're good, we have enough, we will build it bigger and better than it was. And then, as Dennis mentioned, with the water situation, when that water, the water right there in the city itself, there were so many minerals in the water that it would make you sick if you drank it. And so they had to get their water from nearby towns and, and locations. In this letter, just like every other, Jesus begins by describing himself. And he says he is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now the word Amen in Hebrew means truth. And he says he is the Amen, the truth, the God of truth. Then he says he is the faithful and true witness. Well, in the Bible, you also read that God is faithful and true. Now, remember back to your math or your logic. Jesus is faithful and true, he says, and God is faithful and true. That means that Jesus equals God. He's claiming to be God again indirectly. Then he says he is the beginning of God's creation. Now, remember that when you read a passage or read a part of a verse and you wonder what does it mean, you can look at the rest of the Bible and get a sense of what it can mean or not mean. When you look at the rest of the Bible, there's one thing very clearly that this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Jesus himself is a created being. You might read it that way. But that's not what it's saying. The word that we have translated into English as beginning can also <clears throat> be translated as ruler. So then he's saying he's the ruler of creation. But then in John 1, what we read is that Jesus is the creator. Everything was created through the word, through Jesus. And nothing that exists was, is here without it, without him. He is the creator so when he says he's the beginning of creation, he's the source of God's creation. And what we've seen almost every week, directly or indirectly, is a reference to Jesus' power and, and authority. If he's the creator, certainly you see power, because he just spoke and it came into being. And because he is the creator, the one who made everything, he has authority over everything and everyone. And then he speaks to the church. He says, I know your works, 
and I, I misread it when we were reading from the screen. I always want to put hot first. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were. He's wanting them to be cold or hot. And so what Dennis was saying from the, the video series is so appropriate. And then he says, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And just as Dennis was saying in the, the video he referred to, water can help you understand Jesus' words better. You see, we like cold water, especially when we're hot. It's refreshing. And we like hot water, too. Hot water is used to make hot chocolate, coffee, and tea. And some people will tell you that America would just stop in its tracks if there was no coffee. Okay, but again, think of the water situation in Laodicea. They can't drink the local water. It's this mix of the hot water and the cold, but there's so many minerals, you would literally spit it out of your mouth. And so they're bringing water from nearby sources, which again is not going to be nearly as desirable as fresh water. And so Jesus says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Well, it doesn't mean that he's rejected them and they're losing their salvation. It's a way of saying to them, you're not desirable. And if you notice in this letter, Jesus does not commend the Christians in this church for anything. He doesn't say anything good about them at all. Only the negative. Well, then Jesus explains why he says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. He says, you say, I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing. And so here's the danger that we're looking at today. Being too easily satisfied but it doesn't stand by itself, that there are other things related to it as well. You can see in it, it's so easy for us to be distracted. We can feel self-sufficient. I can do life myself. Or as your three-year-old says, I can do it myself. It's the same idea. And it is certainly related to what we looked at last week, a flawed self-perception. We don't see ourselves rightly. We don't see ourselves clearly. So the Christians in Laodicea were satisfied with their money and the comforts that it brought. And they had forgotten, for a time at least, that life is much more than physical. And Jesus says, you say you're rich and all this stuff, but here's what I say. Remember, he's their creator. He's the one that sees clearly everything. He says, you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. Well, how is it that you can have two views that are so totally different? And the answer isn't that Jesus made a mistake. It's our own spiritual blindness. We don't see ourselves as we should. Now, another thing that you'll notice that's missing in this letter is Jesus doesn't mention any trials or any difficulties. In other letters, he talked about persecution. He talked about imminent death. He talked about prison. You don't see any of that here. So what's going on? Well, as I was reading and preparing, I thought about the fishing analogy from last week, that the fisherman's going to put an attractive bait on the hook. Okay, I believe that the Christians in Laodicea had been tempted by prosperity, and they swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. They grabbed a hold of it. So the Christians, just like the town, are rich. And here's the thing about being rich. If people are materially rich, if we have plenty of money, 
you might not call yourself rich, but if you have plenty of money, it can be so easy to be totally oblivious to being spiritually impoverished. Why? Because all of your immediate desires can be satisfied. That doesn't mean that you are totally satisfied, because we aren't. Because as I mentioned, all of the, the things that we chase after and things that we get that are good, the satisfaction doesn't last. And that's a danger for us, even if you don't think of yourself as being rich. Now, to be clear, the people that Jesus is writing to are Christians. But there's a sense in which they had lost the good news of the gospel. Now, the gospel means good news. It's the good news of what we were just singing about in our songs, of what Jesus has done for us. And they knew the gospel, but it wasn't a daily part of their lives. I think it's very possible that they were had latched onto an idea that was popular in the day, and it had a related thought. The, the idea was that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. You, you see that when the disciples are talking to Jesus about, about the blind man, right in front of the blind man as if he's not there. But here's the extension. It goes like this. If you are comfortably well off, or if you're rich, got lots of good stuff. That means that God has blessed you. And that is absolutely true. He has. He's the one that enabled you to get the money that you have. But then there's a second part. It goes with the good things happen to good people. If you got lots of money, that means God has blessed you. That means he's happy with you. And that's a real solid maybe. Maybe yes, maybe no. Maybe he is happy with you. Maybe you have this relationship with God that he made us for. But there are plenty of people back then and today who have lots of money but want nothing to do with the relationship with God. Now, remember from last week another thing that I said. If you and I don't see our need for God, we're not going to turn to God. It's really simple. If we don't see our need for God, we're not going to turn to God. And the Christians in Laodicea didn't need the, see their spiritual need. Oh, they saw the original need, but nothing else. At this point, they're comfortable. They've forgotten that not only are we needy before God comes into our life, we're still needy after he comes in, after we become a Christian. We still need him. And so again, Jesus says of them, you say you're rich, but I say you are wretched and pitiable Poor, blind, and naked. Let's look at those last three for just a minute. Poor. All of us are spiritual debtors to God because of our selfish nature and the disobedience that comes out of that. It's an, and it's a debt that you and I cannot pay on our own. We're blind. None of us naturally see reality as God does. We, we either elevate other people too much, we elevate ourselves too much, we we look down on people. We look down on ourselves. We are all messed up in that regard. And then naked. The dirtiness and the shame of our selfishness and our disobedience to God is exposed. And we can't cover it. We try. But it doesn't really work. And so Jesus says, this is your condition. And now here's my remedy. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. 
So Jesus' remedy addresses the last three things he says, their poverty and their blindness and their nakedness. But this ought to have you kind of jumping in your seat saying, but I got a question. I got a question. Jesus says they're poor, but he says to them, buy from me gold. How is that supposed to work? Think about it. How do you buy money if you don't have any money? How do you buy stuff if you don't have money? You can't. Okay, well, here's what's going on. Jesus, I don't have anything here, but it's like he's holding up a big banner and he's showing it to people and he says, go look at Isaiah 55 because he basically quotes from it. And in Isaiah 55, God is speaking to his people, the people of Israel, and he says this, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. So notice the situation that God gives here in, this, in these verses. You're thirsty, you're hungry, and you have no money. And he says, come buy. Without money, what's he doing? He's using a very roundabout, figurative way to say, I'm giving you a gift. Here's the banquet right here. Just come on up. Okay, there's no cash register on the banquet. You don't have to pay for anything. <clears throat> it's already been covered. It's yours. So put this together with Jesus' words to the people in Laodicea. And he's saying, you buy from Jesus by receiving his gifts. You buy from Jesus by receiving his gifts. And then, you don't stop there, he wants you to delight in God and what God gives you. That's Old Testament picture of this. Get a New Testament picture in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. That means proud. And then get this part. Do not set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Set their hopes on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So what he's saying here, in, in what Jesus is saying in his letter, what he's pointing to is he points to Isaiah 55, and then you see other verses like this one we just looked at. He's saying, I'm providing you gifts. Buy, put it in quotes, white garments. White is a picture of purity. Garments cover our nakedness. What he's saying is, I have a gift for you. It's Jesus' righteousness. That is, it's Jesus' perfect record of obedience, and it's just given to you. Trust in what Jesus has done, not in what you can do. And then he says, also, I'm giving you salve for your eyes. I'm making it so you can see spiritually. You can see reality. You and I can see life in light of eternity. And then Jesus says something absolutely amazing. Given that he doesn't commend them for a thing. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Do you notice that by his own words, Jesus still loves these people, these messed up Christians 
who've forgotten him. He still loves them because he's reproving them. He's saying, people, wake up. Look, you are all messed up. You think you're good, but you're not. You need to change. And so he says, reprove and discipline. Now, discipline isn't just punishment. And I put that in quotes. It also includes training and strengthening. And I say that because when you read the Bible, what you see is that God does not punish his people, his children. God doesn't punish Christians, and he can't and be still just because all the punishment that you deserve if you're a Christian has already been taken by Jesus. Now, we can still get the consequences of our choices. That's part of the training that he does with us. And then he says, be zealous and repent. When he says, be zealous, he's saying, get serious about your spiritual life. Get serious about your relationship with God. Don't say, as I've heard some say, well, you know what? One of these days, I'm going to get around to God. Okay, when I've had all the fun I want here, then I'll, I'll get things, you know, I'll get in a good place with God. Where's that person's focus? It's all here. It's all on me. They don't see their need. All they see is their desires. And then Jesus says, repent again. I mean, we've seen this word repent a lot in these letters. Okay, so it must be important. And what it means very simply is this. Every time you and I chase our own desires and turn away from God, he says, turn back. Because his arms are open wide with welcome. And then he makes a promise, Jesus does, in the letter. He says, he stands at the door of your heart and he knocks. If anyone opens the door, Jesus will come in and eat with him. Well, in the Christian church, this verse is often used to talk about Jesus pursuing somebody who's not a Christian yet. And Jesus does that. Just like God was the one in the Old Testament that came and found Abraham. God was the one that came and found Noah and talked to him. God is the one that comes after us. That's true. But if you notice in this letter, Jesus is writing this to Christians. Christians who have effectively pushed Jesus out of their lives. And you know what? You and I can do that too. So easily. You know, I talked last week about amnesia. About forgetting. And if you go back and look, one of the things that you'll see all the way through the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, is God's command to us to remember. Why does he do that? Because we forget. Well, one of the ways that we forget is we can have Jesus amnesia. Monday through Saturday. Unless you're praying for your food, okay, you might just not even be thinking of Jesus. You're busy thinking of all of the things you've got going on with work and school and friends and people and everything else you're doing. And it's just so easy to just kind of forget. Well, here in this, Jesus is saying, I'm coming after you. I'm pursuing you. I want a relationship with you where we talk every day, all through the day. And he asks for that relationship knowing exactly what we're like. And again, he's taking the initiative. He's the one knocking. And what he wants, you know, he says, I want to sit down and eat with you. They understood in that day that meant not just a casual relationship, but a close relationship. 
an intimate relationship. And then Jesus says to the one who conquers, he's saying this to the people who are also messed up, but he says, if you repent, if you turn back to God and say, God, you're right, I have forgotten you, please forgive me. And, and say, would you give me that zeal? To that person, he says, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So he's making a very clear parallel. He says, to the one who conquers, you get to sit with me on my throne, just as I conquered and sat with my father on his throne. Well, some of you are going to be disappointed, but it is unclear what it means to sit with Jesus on his throne. But there is something we can see. Jesus said that he conquered. How did Jesus conquer? And you have to put it in quotes because it's backwards. Jesus conquered by obeying God, by loving God, by loving others. Jesus conquered by submitting and sacrificing. And that's how you and I conquer. It's by submitting to God and trusting God and by sacrificing, by using what God has given us as we help others and do things. So let's come back to the danger. You and I can be so easily satisfied with the things around us, with all the good things that God has given us. And remember from James, every Every good gift we every good thing we have is a gift from God. He's given it to us. But what we find is this is nothing new. It didn't just pop up in the book of Revelation. Okay, you see it in Deuteronomy thirty one. And this is God speaking to his people, to the people of Israel, just before he gives them the promised land. He says, For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat. They will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. There, what he says is, the temptation is when you're there in the land and you're, you're now wealthy because God has given you this wealth, the temptation is to forget God and to chase your own desires. That's the temptation, to forget God to focus on the gift and forget the giver. Now, I'm going to say it twice. Wealth is not a bad thing. But there is a sense in which wealth can be more dangerous spiritually than poverty. Because we can be so easily satisfied. But the warning in the situation isn't just in the Old Testament. We see it also in the New Testament. When Jesus gives a warning in Matthew 6, 19... Where he says, do not lay for yourselves, up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. He goes on to say more that basically qualifies it. Do not only lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. He, he's not against you having a savings account, just so you know. Okay, He's not against you preparing for the future and having an inheritance that you can give to your children and those kinds of things. He's not against that. He just doesn't want this and the things around it to be the only thing you and I focus on and think about. Not even the primary thing that you and I focus on. And when you look at the Christians in Laodicea, they were materially rich, but they were spiritually complacent. They said, I'm good. Don't need anything else. 
Again, being rich isn't a sin, but it can be dangerous. But there's another extreme, and you, you've seen it in the church if you've ever read any church history. And that's the people that give away everything they have. And that's a very dangerous thing unless God tells you to do that. That doesn't solve the problem. Just like when the Christian church went from being persecuted to becoming more popular, and the some of the some of the Christians who had been in the church and had been persecuted saw these strangers coming in who really weren't that interested in Christianity. They ran off to the caves because they wanted to stay pure. And they thought separating ourselves from all these dirty people will keep me pure. And what they found was, no, I brought my dirt with me. That's what we do. Okay, So giving away all your money doesn't take care of the temptation of wanting stuff and misusing the things that God gives us. What God does most often is he gives to us to provide for us. Then he gives us more than we need so we can enjoy it and so we can use it to help other people as well. So with these Christians in Laodicea, not only was their problem that they were too easily satisfied with their wealth, but they were relying on their wealth. They said, I, I'm rich and I don't need anything. And they, so they're relying on their wealth and not relying on God. And you know what? I think they went to church every Sunday, just like we do. And it's easy to go to church and then, as I said, to get busy with the rest of your life and not think about God and faith in God and God's word during the week. Just remember this. If you and I are not thinking about God, we certainly are not relying on him can't do it so not only is this a personal thing but you know what churches just like the church at Laodicea churches today we can rely on our programs and the other things we have going on rather than relying on God and I think Dennis even touched on that in his prayer so let me end with four questions four first who or what do you rely on it's okay for us to rely on other people. Just remember, we're all broken. So is, is God your solid rock? Is he the foundation that you turn to? Or have you done what I've done in the past? I, I don't actually make it up, but in my mind, I have put a little sign in front of God that says, uh, break glass in case of emergency. Okay? Last resort. Nothing else works. Go this way. It's easy for us to do that. Who or what are we relying on? Who or what do you desire? We desire many people, many things. Where is God on the list? Where do you turn for comfort? And how do you spend your time and money? Okay, these are questions that you shouldn't just say, oh, check, 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 done, I'm good. Keep it and kind of think on it, meditate on it. And maybe you're wondering, well, how do I know where I rely on? You know, who, where, where my reliance is, where my desires are. One of the ways, listen to your own prayers. Listen to your own prayers. As I was thinking about this, I was remembering a, a time in my life where I was sick of my prayers because I realized, one, I say basically the same thing every time. Not quite as simple as God is great, God is good, thank you for this food. Okay? 
but there wasn't much more substance than that, and I realized I was just asking. And what I realize now is God was working through His Spirit in me, where I was. He began to let me see me, me, and I was saying, you know what? I'm not happy, God, with this prayer. I'm not happy with me. And then He began answering that prayer and saying, okay, so let's work. And He began working in my life, and still is, to this day, because we never, never are going to not need God. And maybe that's where you might be there. The other thing that you'll see, as that you might see as you look at your prayer life, is this very strange combination of two things. That we're delighted in God, and we're needy. And you know what? As the one grows, so does the sense of the other. As, as we grow in our understanding of God, we realize even more that I need Him even more than I thought I did. And we see His beauty. And we see his wonder. We see the amazing in amazing grace. That's what God does in us. And that's what he's calling us to. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for sharing this letter. Thank you for helping us to see the dangers. And these are not all of them, not by any means. But what you, what you show is our need for you, and then you show how you provide, how you'd already provided from before the creation of the world for all of this. And you call us into this adventure you call the Christian life, this relationship with you, to live life. Lord, would you please continue to work in us. And just as we were singing earlier, even when I don't see it, and when I don't feel it, you are working in the life of every Christian, because you promised that you will. So we thank you for that, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond with a song.